This is the Truth Podcast, where we question everything and no topic is off limits. I got it all covered. Discover the truths about topics you were never taught in school. Learn the uncomfortable and inconvenient truths about current events, geopolitics, culture, economics, and healthcare. You're now listening to the Truth Podcast. Question everything. And now your host, Richard. And we are back. Welcome to the Truth Podcast. I am your host, Richard. It is Monday, September 30. Man, this month has gone by. And of course, we are back for another episode on the Truth Podcast. This week's topic, the Federal Reserve. History of lies, thievery, and deceit. But before we get into this week's podcast, of course... We do have an official website, truthpodcast.net. Definitely check it out. You can watch and listen to every single podcast I've done. Of course, there's articles that I have written on the week's podcast topics. And of course, you can also check out the online store that will be coming very soon. So with that being said, don't forget to share this podcast, like and subscribe. We are on almost every major platform when it comes to streaming content. That includes iTunes, that includes Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, SoundCloud, Podbean, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Brighteon, BitChute, and coming very soon, Gab, the alternative to Twitter. So with that being said, I hope your Monday is going well. Let's get into this week's topic. So, the Federal Reserve. Let me ask you a question. Did you ever wonder why the national debt keeps going up and up? I mean, what is it right now? It's somewhere around $21 trillion or approaching that? I mean, it's ridiculous, right? But it continues to go up every single second of every minute of every day. It continues to go up. And one of the most ungodly and fraudulent institutions ever perpetuated on the American people and the world is the Federal Reserve System, which through deceit became the central bank of the United States in 1913. Now, the idea came about on a meeting in Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia in 1910. The banksters in this country, especially J.P. Morgan, right, Chase, they created a currency panic in 1907 in order to get the American people to accept the idea of a central bank. Does that shock you? It shouldn't. But a central bank already existed in England as far back as 1694. The Rothschilds completely dominated the banking system. It is estimated that their wealth is in the trillions. Trillions. Baron Nathan Mayer Rothschilds boasted, and I quote, I care not what puppet is placed onto the throne of England to rule the empire on which the sun never sets? The man that controls Britain's money supply controls the British Empire. And I control the British money supply. End quote. The idea of a central bank is to so enslave the people of the country to a debt money system that you continue to collect taxes continuously, which just covers the interest. The Duke people of the United States are paying roughly $400 billion per year to the IRS, which is basically the collection agency for the Federal Reserve. And by the way, the Federal Reserve is a privately owned 
bank with 10 private members. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. Federal Reserve sounds like, yeah, it's a federal government institution or organization, but it's not. The only thing federal in the Federal Reserve is the word federal. Does that shock you? Is that something that you know about? Some of you economic majors that might be listening to this or have a degree in economics or finance, perhaps you didn't know that the Federal Reserve is actually privately owned. Now, the Chase Manhattan Bank, which is a member owned by the Rockefellers, who are Rothschild agents. I will list 10 members at the end of this podcast, and we'll go into detail of who actually owns the Federal Reserve. Now, at this point, the citizens of the United States falsely owe these lemmings over $20 trillion. Have you ever asked this question? Who has that much money to loan to the United States? Well, let's go into the history of lies. During the time of Babylonian captivity in Judah, a man named Jacob Ijibi became the founding father of the modern banking. While Judah was in captivity, Jacob began a business of loaning out money for a rate of interest. During the reign of King Kandulu of Babylon, which was between 648 to 625 BC, a new phenomenon appeared on the scene which Jacob Ejibi played a major part, and that was the invention of private banking. There were two prominent families at this time. They were the Ejibi family and the Iranu families. These two families are not a figment of imagination as their names have appeared in many cuneiform tablets discovered by archaeologists. It is believed that the Ejibi family was taken with the first captivity into Asura and then later migrated to Babylon. At this time of the 70-year captivity, Jacob Ejibi already had an ongoing private banking business in which he collected large sums of interest. Now we have a secular insight into why many of the Jews did not want to return to Nahima to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. Now, by the time of the end of the captivity, many of the others who were in captivity with the Ejibi families learned of its evil business practice and began to set up shop. A good example of this are the money changers which the Lord Jesus Christ threw out of the temple. As a friend of mine said to me many times, Christ drove the money changers from the temple and was crucified four days later. Well, during the time of the Persian period, loan sharking became a business where interest rates of anywhere between 30 to 50 percent were charged. As time went on, the writings of the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that the reigns of Caesar Artigas from 27 BC to 1480, and Tiberius from 14 and 32 AD, records of the Roman Empire revealed deposits, withdrawals, broker fees, and loans. When the Western Roman Empire fell, banking continued to thrive in Egypt, Byzantium, and the Arab nations of the Red Sea. When the Christian era began to take hold and the church became a powerful entity, she returned to the Old Testament edict of not charging usury and this idea continued up until the time of the Renaissance, when banks began appearing across Europe. To show you how some kings despised usury, I offer two quotations. First, if any man is found taking usury, his lands will be confiscated, and he will be banished from England. That was by Alfred the Great, former king of England between 1849 and 901 AD. Here's another quote. If a man is found taking usury, his lands will be confiscated, 
It is like taking a man's life, and it must not be tolerated. That was by James I, King of England between 1566 and 1625 AD. With the rise of international trade, which commenced at the end of the medieval period, many of the banks were allowed to coin money for their transactions. At the time, there was no such thing as national money, and when banks minted coins, they were all of different value, which created a dilemma for international trade. The first Christian gold coins were struck by Emperor Frederick II in 1225 AD. Then came the Ducats of Portugal, and the Florins of Florence, and the Anglins, and the Agnels of France, and the Sequins, which became the official coin of Genoa and Venice. Europe then progressed from a feudal system, and with this came trade between different nations which resulted in foreign monies accumulating in the various cities in Europe. 1694, the year which doomed the world economies. The government of King William III was in desperate need of money. When learning of the situation, a man named William Patterson put together a cartel of wealthy men of which he was the leader. Patterson and his cronies agreed to loan the king 1.2 million pounds sterling, which would have been approximately $6 million at 8% interest per year on the condition that the king would grant two things. One, he would grant Patterson and his associates a charter which would name them the Bank of England. And two, this bank shall have the sole and exclusive right to issue notes to the full extent of its capital. The people were having a problem with their gold and silver coins, of which the bankers quickly came to the rescue. The solution is aptly described by Professor Carol Quigley in his book, Tragedy and Hope. For generations, men had sought to avoid the one drawback of gold, its heaviness, by using pieces of paper to represent specific pieces of gold. Today, we call such pieces of paper gold certificates. Such a certificate entitled its barrier to exchange it for pieces of gold on demand. But in view of convenience of paper, only a small fraction of certificate holders ever did make such demands. It became very clear that gold needed to be held on hand only to the amount needed to cover the fraction of certificates likely to be presented for payment. Accordingly, the rest of the gold could be used for business purposes or what amounts to the same thing. A volume of certificates could be issued greater than the volume of gold reserved for payment such as excess volume of paper claims against reserves we now call banknotes. In effect, this creation of, of paper claims greater than reserves available means the bankers were creating money out of nothing. The king literally granted the Bank of England the legal right to print all the money that would be used in commerce by the people and the government. In other words, the Bank of England became the sole money source of any currency that was used in English commerce by either the people or the government. If they needed more money, they simply printed it. It was said by 1698, the British government owed at least 16 times the amount of sterling to the Bank of England. Now keep in mind, this was only four years. 1773, the second date of infamy. In 1773, a wealthy goldsmith and coin dealer named Mayor Amstel Bauer summoned 12 wealthy and influential men to his place of business in Frankfurt, Germany. His purpose for the meeting was to impress upon these men that if they pulled their resources, it was possible to gain control of the wealth, natural resources, and manpower of the entire world. 
He then outlined a 25-point plan on how to accomplish it. Those 25 points are, one, use violence and terrorism rather than academic discussions. Two, preach liberalism to usurp political power. Three, initiate class warfare. Four, politicians must be cunning and deceptive. Any moral code leaves a politician vulnerable. Five, dismantle existing forces of order and regulation. Reconstruct all existing institutions. Six, remain invisible until the very moment when it has gained such strength that no cunning or force can undermine it. Seven, use mob psychology to control the masses. Without absolute despotism, one cannot rule efficiently. Eight, advocate for the use of alcoholic liquors, drug, moral corruption, and all forms of vice used systematically by agenteers to corrupt the youth. Nine, seize properties by any means to secure submission and sovereignty. 10. Foment wars and control the peace conferences so that neither the combatants gain territory placing them further in debt and therefore into our power. 11. Choose candidates for public office who will be servitile and obedient to our commands so they may be readily used as pawns in our game. 12. Use the press for propaganda to control all outlets of public information while remaining in the shadows, clear blame. 13. Make the masses believe they have been the prey of criminals, then restore order to appear as the saviors. 14. Create financial panics. Use hunger to control, to subjugate the masses. 15. Infiltrate Freemasonry to take advantage of the gold of the Grand Orient Lodges to cloak the true nature of their work in philanthropy. Spread their aesthetic, materialistic ideology amongst the Gentiles. 16. When the hour strikes for our sovereign lord of the entire world to be crowned, their influence will banish everything that might stand in his way. 17. Use systematic deception, high-sounding phrases and popular slogans. The opposite of what has been promised can always be done afterwards. That is of no consequence. 18. A reign of terror is the most economical way to bring about speedy subjection. 19. Masquerade as political, financial, and economic advisors to carry out our mandates with diplomacy and without fear of exposing the secret power behind national and international affairs. 20. Ultimate world government is the goal. It will be necessary to establish huge monopolies, so even the largest fortunes of the Goyim will depend on us to such an extent that they will go to the bottom together with the credit of their governments on the day after the great political smash. 21. Use economic warfare. Rob the Goyim of their landed properties and industries with a combination of high taxes and unfair competition. 22. Make the Goyim destroy each other so there will only be the proletariat left in the world. With a few millionaires devoted to our cause and sufficient police and soldiers to protect our interests. 23. Call it the New World Order. Appoint a dictator. 24. Fool, bemuse, and corrupt the younger members of society by teaching them theories and principles we know to be false. And 25. 
twist national and international laws into a contradiction which first masks the law and afterwards hides it altogether. Substitute arbitration for law. The plan was put into operation and evidentiary information exists that Bauer aligned himself with Adam Weshbutt, who was the founder of the Illuminati, whose aim was and still is world domination. Bauer later changed his name to Rothschild, which means Red Shield. He took it from the red sign which hung outside his place of business, the eagle clutching five golden arrows in its claws. It was supposed to symbolize his five sons. Presently, the red shield represents the official coat of arms of the city of Frankfurt, Germany. Later on, each of these five sons were dispatched to a major city in Europe to establish a branch of the Rothschild banking firm. Son number one, Amschel, remained in Frankfurt and propelled Germany to a financial success under Bismarck. Son number two, Salomon, went to Vienna, Australia. Went to Vienna, Austria. He became a leader in Austria-Hungary Empire. Son number three, Nathan Mayer, he went to England where he took control of the Bank of England. Son number four, son number four, Carl, went to Naples where he became the most powerful man in Italy through his banking skills. And son number five, James Jacob, he went to Paris where he established the Central Bank. He was credited with dominating the financial destiny of the nation of France. Now, by 1850, the House of Rothschild represented more wealth than all families in Europe. Shortly after he formed the Bank of England, William Patterson lost control of it to Nathan Rothschild. And here's how he did it. Nathan Rothschild was an observer on the day the Duke of Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo, Belgium. He knew that with this information, he could make a fortune. He later paid a seller a big fee to take him across the English Channel in bad weather. The news of Napoleon's defeat would take a while to hit England. When Nathan arrived in London, he began selling securities and bonds in a panic. The other investors were deceived into believing that Napoleon won the war and was eyeing England, so they began to sell their securities too. What they were unaware of was that the Rothschild agents were buying all the securities that were being sold in the panic. In one day, the Rothschild fortune grew by one million pounds. They literally bought control of England for a few cents on the dollar. The same way the Rothschilds went into Japan after World War II and bought everything 10 cents on the dollar. Now, there were other wealthy families in Europe and America who were allowed to join the International Banking Club, such as John D. Rockefeller and John Piermort Morgan. The Americans had won their political independence, but their financial dependence was in jeopardy. The international bankers had an agent in place, and his name was Alexander Hamilton, who wanted a central bank. Thomas Jefferson lobbied vehemently against the central bank, stating it was contrary to the Constitution. However, a central bank was formed in 1781 known as the Bank of North America, which was patterned after the Bank of England. The colonists wanted nothing to do with it, so it folded in 1790. The international banksters countered the closing of the Bank of North America by gaining a charter for the Bank of the United States, which was chartered on February 25, 1791. The Bank of France desired the formation of the U.S. Bank also, and it was chartered for 20 years. In 1826, the second bank's charter was soon to expire, and presidential candidate Andrew Jackson campaigned strongly against the central bank, which was owned and operated by the international banking element. Here is Jackson's opinion of those bankers. 
And I quote, You are a den of vipers. I intend to wipe you out. And by the eternal God, I will rout you out. If people only understood the rank injustice of your money and banking system, there would be a revolution by morning. Unquote. In 1836, the charter did expire, but that was not the end of the international banking influence in this country. The Civil War was planned in England as far back as 1809. Slavery was not the real cause of the Civil War. The Rothschilds, who were heavy into the slave trade, used slavery as an issue to divide and conquer, which almost split the United States in two. The Bank of England financed the North, while the Paris branch of the Rothschild Bank funded the South. In 1863, the National Banking Act was passed despite protest by President Lincoln. This act allowed a private corporation the authority to issue our money. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll leave it right there and we'll pick up part two of the Federal Reserve, Lies, Thievery, and Deceit next week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's edition of the Truth Podcast. I am your host, Richard, as always, and I will catch you back next week. Have a great rest of your Monday and enjoy the rest of your week. Take care.